Uh, you can be seated. Let's, uh, let's open with prayer together. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, we want to thank you uh, for the life of Joseph and uh, want to pray over uh, everything that we can uh, glean from his life today and, and apply it to ours. Uh, we thank you, again, for our perfect example of Jesus. Uh, Joseph is, is not our perfect example. Jesus is our perfect example. And may we follow his ultimate ways in all things. It's in the name of him, uh, it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. I was reading uh, a story, a new story, uh, several years ago about a guy that stole a woman's purse as she was coming off a bus. She reported to the police, but they said there's really no chance of ever finding this person. Uh, you, you know, we, we just don't even really investigate that much on, on incidents like this. You're, you're probably just going to have to replace the contents of your purse. And what ended up happening in the news story was that the criminal kind of went through her purse and find her, found her identifying information and decided to call her two days later for a date. <laughs> and I'm just trying to imagine how this conversation goes. It's like, yeah, you, you really don't know me that well. Um, I stole your purse yesterday. I thought you were really cute. Um, I was wondering, like, do you, do you have like a boyfriend? You know, I mean, how on earth does this go? And so she gets his name and identifying information off the caller ID, reports it to the police, and sure enough, he gets caught and she gets all the contents of her purse back. And I'm guessing from that guy's perspective, that is a decision uh, he wished he could have had back. You know, he's like, man, I was hoping to get a date, not a visit from the police. What in the world? What is the world coming to, right? <laughs> I thought we had a good thing going, right? And don't we all have those moments? Not that exact moment, obviously, but these kind of moments in life where we wish we could kind of have them back. It's, uh, it's something you said, maybe. And the minute the words came out of your mouth, the minute they came out of your mouth, you wish you could have those words back. Maybe it was a spending purchase, and before the card even really even got swiped, you're like, I shouldn't be doing this. This is not a good purchase. Maybe it was a relationship, and you had already gone out on one day, and you agreed to go on a second, and you're, you're just wishing you could have some of these moments back. The Bible calls making good decisions and walking in a godly way. The Bible refers to that as wisdom. Jesus told a story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon Jesus gives in Matthew 5 through 7, where he is kind of laying out the kingdom of God and what living in the kingdom looks like. And at the end of that sermon, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it stood because it had its foundation on the rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his foundation on the sand. The same wind came, the same, st same storm arose, the same winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell flat because its foundation was on the sand. This is wisdom from the Bible's perspective. It is hearing a word from God in his word, or even sometimes just through the Holy Spirit, impressed in your heart and your mind, it's hearing a word from God and deciding to take action based on that word. That's wisdom, all right? Now, you can, I hope you don't tune out the rest of the sermon, but that's what the sermon is about, all right? It is hearing a word from God and taking action based on that word. And we're going to see Joseph, we're in this uh, Genesis series on the life of Joseph, and we're going to hear him kind of hear a word from God through someone else's dream, 
hear a word from God and take action based on that dream, based on that word, and we're gonna, it's going to teach us a principle that we can apply it to in our lives in a very practical way. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Genesis 41. You may remember where we left off last week, that Joseph was in prison after being falsely accused. And while he's in prison, Pharaoh ends up having a dream. All right, Remember, Joseph is in Egypt, and Pharaoh has a dream. And the dream is that there are seven cows, and they are kind of... Uh, sleek and healthy and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And then there are seven other cows who are kind of gaunt and skinny, right? Not good eats, right? And they stood next to the other cows. And then there were, uh, and, and what ended up happening is that the kind of skinny cows ended up eating the really, really healthy uh, uh, cows. And then the dream goes on that there's seven heads of grain, healthy and good, and they're growing on a single stalk. And then he saw these seven scorched heads of grain, and the scorched heads of grain end up eating the healthy heads of grain. And I love what the Bible says. The Bible says when he got up from this dream of, you know, skinny cows eating fat cows and, you know, scorched reeds eating healthy reeds and all that stuff, the Bible says that when Pharaoh got up, he was greatly disturbed. And he sought out his magicians and his wise men, and none of them knew what to make of the stream. And finally, one of the cupbearer is there. He sees this progressing. He's like, hey, I had a dream while I was in prison, and this guy that I was in prison with ended up interpreting my dream. I wonder if he could interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so Joseph does exactly that. He's brought out of prison. He's given a shower, shave, all that stuff to look presentable. And he comes and he says basically that the grain and the cows are the year's represent years, and that God is going to give Egypt seven years of abundance, but then seven years of famine will follow, all right? So that's the meaning of the dream of the skinny cows, the the healthy cows, the scorched stalks, and the, the healthy stalks of grain. He says it's going to be seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. And I want to show you what happens next in Genesis 41, verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in his chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, you can see it there on the screen, um, and gave him uh, the, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, to be his wife, and Joseph went throughout the whole land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember, he was 17 when the th dreams happened with his brothers. So we've got 13 years here. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentiful. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and, and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea, uh, it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. That's the abundant years. And before the years of famine came, two sons were born, born to Joseph. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all of my father's household. And the second son was Ephraim. And he said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. 
And then the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had, just as Joseph had said. And there was a famine in all the other lands, but the whole land of Egypt, in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all of the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you to do. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. So you notice what happens in verse 41, right? He's put in the charge of the whole land of Egypt. Just a short time ago, a few verses in your Bible, just a short time ago, he's in prison, from prison to prince. And and the question becomes, what do you do in that moment? What do you do in that moment when you have had a change of fortune to that degree? How do you manage that blessing? What do you do when you're given charge of an entire nation? How do you use the power that God has given you in a wise and good way? And here's why this is so important as we start. Everyone is charged with leading someone or something in this life. And some of you may be tempted to say this morning, no, no, Steve, you don't understand. I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm just a parent. Well, if you're a parent, you're a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm just a friend. Well, if you're a friend, you're a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm just a church member or, or, or part of my small group or Sunday school. You are a leader. Every single person has been tasked and given responsibility to lead someone or, or something. Like I said, some of you have kids, and that is your task during the season. Some of you have a Sunday school or a small group. Some of you have employees at work. All of us have our lives, our very lives. We're in a, in a real way, we're kind of leading ourselves or marriages, and God has given you the task to manage and to lead. And here, here, here's the question of Joseph. What does it look like to manage and lead with integrity? What does it look like? Whatever kind of scope God has given you, and I believe every single one of us in this room is a leader, whatever it is, what, is, what, what does it mean to do that well? To manage well, to lead well, to love well, to do that well, to, with all the things that God has charged you with. And you've got a list in your head, just like I have a list in my head. What does it mean to live a life of wisdom? If you go back to the dream, remember, seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph, what this looked like for Joseph, when the land was producing greatly, he saved the grain. So that when the land went into famine, everybody would have the grain that they needed. And this is an incredible principle for you and for me. Your job, as someone who's in charge of someone or something, your job, as someone who's managing and leading and in charge of someone, even if it's just yourself, as someone who who lives a life that, that is in charge and leading someone, let me put this on the screen for you. Here's your job. It is to make sure there is enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. If you want to know what it means to lead with integrity, what it means to lead in wisdom, what it means to lead the way God wants you to lead, this is your task as a parent. This is your task as a married person. This is your task as a church member. This is your task as a friend. This is a task in your company. It is to the best of your ability to make sure there is enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. Now, you can tell Joseph works for the government, can't you? 
You can tell reading the story that he's a government official. I, I, I love what happens here. He says, all right, all of you, we're going to like tax your grain. All of you, give me your grain. I'm going to hold it for you. It's going to be nice and secure with me. I'm going to hold it for you. And then when you need it, I'm going to sell it back to you. <laughs> Are you getting ready to prepare your taxes too? That's how our tax system works. Right? You can tell he's a government dude, right? He's like, I'll, I'll store it for you. Don't worry about it. I'll store it for you. And when you need it, I'll give you a good price. I'll give you a real good price on that grain. Yeah, right? He, he, he is a government guy. And so you might have some issues as you read that. We were talking to Sunday school this morning. I'm doing a kind of uh, cutting floor class where we just talk about other things uh, that didn't get into the sermon. But we were talking this morning about we all have kind of mixed reviews exactly on how Joseph executed all of this. But the original principle is super wise. And super good. And so we can lay down other stuff like, I don't love this leadership principle. That's fine. That, that's fine. But the, the original thing is still true. That we want to make sure there's enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. It's just wise, isn't it? And it's important to know that this is a principle, not a promise. That in general, if you'll live the way I'm about to describe to you, life will be better. But God is not guaranteeing, God doesn't do this. He's not guaranteeing you some magic pill that will fix all of your problems. But if you do this, I'm telling you, you will be going against the grain of our culture. Pun intended. You, you will be going against the grain because there, not a lot of people live this way. You see it in the story. During times of plenty, what do the rest of the nations do? They spent every single dime that they had. Every single dime that they had. And then when the famine hit, when trouble hit, they had to go to Egypt to buy and borrow grain from them. Now listen, I can see it in some of your eyes. Some of you are, wait, wait, wait. Are we getting ready to do a money sermon? No, we're not. This is a life sermon. We're going to talk about money a tiny bit, but this is, this is not a money sermon. This is a life sermon. Because this is one of the truths that Joseph is going to teach us, is that part of us as leaders, and every single person is, even if you're just leading yourself, is to make sure there is enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. Here's what the fool says. The fool says, famine will never come for me. Not to be a heartbreaker to that. Famine comes for everyone. Jesus said one time, in this world you will have trouble. Not you could, not you might. Not, there's a strong possibility. In this world, you will have trouble. Another section of scripture says he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. See, there is a false teaching that says, oh, just because I'm in Christ, the rain will never come for me. The famine will never come for me. No, famine comes for everyone. And I think you can make an argument that one of the reasons the economic kind of situation in our country has been uh, so, so difficult um, is because of a lack of this sort of thing in our culture. I remember reading several years ago during the housing crisis, about 10 years ago, I think it was, during the housing crisis, they were kind of using Las Vegas as an example. They were saying that during the times of plenty, the people in Las Vegas borrowed two to three times their house, house's worth uh, to kind of buy what they wanted, to live the life they wanted. They were borrowing two to three times what their home was worth, and then all of a sudden famine comes housing crisis comes, and all of a sudden their homes are worth a third of what it was. And that's just a financial example. See, it's foolish to think that famine will never come. Sometimes it comes to your relationship with God. 
and you go through a series, a season of, of doubt and worry with God, and you wonder where he is, famine comes for everyone. It's foolish it won't, to think it won't come to your marriage, where maybe in your marriage, all of a sudden you don't like each other the way that you did, and the home, home feels cold and icy. It's foolish to think it will never come. It's foolish to think it won't come with your kids, where they're in a season of uh, disobedience and rebellion, and you just don't know what to do. And I know kids zones in here, and we don't have any kids that are like that here. But every once in a while, someone goes through a season like that where their kids are just being disobedient and rebellious and hard, and you don't know what to do. It's foolish to think the famine will never come. The foolish person says, famine will never come for me. The wise person, the wise leader, the wise manager says, no, it's my job as the leader. It's my job as the leader to make sure there is enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. Joseph did this for an entire nation, but, but it's true for you and for me. And we, I want to work, some, uh, work through some ways in which this is true in a couple different areas of our life. It's true in our relationship with God. When I was in college, one of my professors uh, used to say this. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He said, Steve, my advice to you as you go into adulthood is dig your wells deep enough that you always have fresh water to draw from. And what he meant was, man, don't waste the times when you're not in crisis. Right? There are these times. If you're in crisis right now, you maybe can't remember when that was, but there are times where you're not in crisis. He said, don't waste the times of plenty when things are good. Use those times to get to know God, to build a relationship with him, to worship him. Dig that well super deep so you'll always have fresh water to draw from when the famine comes. Because the fact of the matter is, and if you have any age on, on you at all, you know, Challenging times come. Tough times come. And if you have not dug that well really deep, I've seen it pastorally a lot. When that well has not been dug deep, when there's not enough grain in the storehouse, all of a sudden during the tough time, I see people give up on God. They walk away from him. They reject him. They're done with the whole spirituality thing. I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she was expressing a really hard time that, that she's going through. And she said, you know what, Steve, just the last six months or so, I am not feeling God. I, I'm just not feeling it. I, I, I'm just not feeling it at, at, at all. And I understand that. I've had seasons like that too. But you know what's true of her? She's not giving up. She's not throwing in the towel. She's not walking away. Why? Because in times of plenty, she built that relationship with God. She built her love for him. She desired to worship him more and more. And now, in a season of famine, she has enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. She has enough history with God now, enough background with God, enough love for God to sustain her through a really difficult time. See, there's a tendency when times are really good to not think about our relationship with God very often. It's me too. Right? This is not, not a judgmental thing at all. Me too. There, there is a tendency when times are good and the times of plenty that we just kind of forget about that. You know, yeah, yeah, God's good. He's with me, whatever. But we, we don't really think about it that much. The wise person seizes those seasons to drill deep, to store some grain, to work on their relationship with God in times of plenty so they have enough grain in the storehouse. 
One of my favorite preachers um, is a guy in Dallas, Texas, and his church has a lot of young people, a lot of college-age people. And I saw him speaking at a seminar one time, and he said, it just became clear to me that the young people in my church had not been prepared to suffer well. There wasn't enough grain in the storehouse. That, that they, they had not been prepared to suffer well. And so when he was watching their younger people go through crisis, he was watching them turn their back on God because however, whatever metaphor you like best, the well wasn't deep enough, there wasn't enough grain in the storehouse. They, they couldn't survive the crisis. And so he said, I made it my mission to start to prepare my church for suffering. And, and so you can imagine how awesome those sermons were, right? That he's, he's preparing them to suffer and, and, and tough it out with God. And about a year into that venture, the pastor, the preacher, found out that he had brain cancer. And I'll never forget the line that he used. He said, I thought I was preparing my people to suffer. It turned out God was preparing me. Make sure there's enough grain in the storehouse, guys to survive the famine, be in his word, attend church regularly, have an active prayer life, be in good Bible studies. One of my deep-held pastoral concerns over the last two years is that as a nation, we are going through crisis and study after study after study shows that as we're going through the crisis, we are becoming less connected to God and to his people. It deeply concerns me because I have a paradigm backed up by experience in my own personal life. I, I, have, an experience, I have an experience that God matters as you're going through crisis. God helps when you're going through crisis. Faith makes a deep, deep difference. And so I'm watching our nation go through a crisis, and also becoming disconnected from God and from his church. And it concerns me. And so I want us as a church to be a people that we have enough grain in the storehouse that when the famine comes, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's not easy. Of course it's hard. And of course it's not easy. But there's enough grain there to sustain us. That we continue to love God. We continue to be faithful to him. We continue to walk with him in the times of crisis because we have dug the well deep enough. We put enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. It's true in our relationship with God. It's true in our marriages. How many of you know that sometimes challenges come to a marriage? If you would say you don't understand that, I'm going to guess you've been married less than five years. Right? <laughs> just, just a guess. Right? Challenges come. I remember when Cheryl and I were first trying to have children, we realized we were not going to be able to do that naturally. And that, uh, so we, initially we started with an infertility consultant, uh, ended up being diagnosed with just undiagnosable infertility. Um, uh, they, they don't know why we weren't, we weren't able to have children. We, were, we always said during those years that it would be the worst joke in history after all of our adoptions were done worst joke in history uh, to, to end up being pregnant because they never really knew why, why we weren't. And we were like, man, we would be so full of joy eventually. Um, <laughs> joy would come at some point. Um, but we were, we were seeing an infertility special. That path didn't really work out. And uh, we ended up going through an adoption process to adopt our children. But I remember meeting with the infertility specialist. And immediately, like, he starts asking us, Lots and lots of questions about our marriage. 
like intrusive questions about our marriage. And we're like, what on earth is this about? And then he kind of shared with us why. He said that the, the divorce rates among couples that struggle to have children at that time was around 80%. There's not enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. The marriage can't survive the struggle. And I lost track of the number of people I know that have gotten divorced. They hit a struggle, financial, relational, physical, and the marriage just couldn't survive it. This is why when you go to a wedding and you kind of tune out, I, I know you do this. You tune out during the sermon at weddings. At funerals, at funerals, everybody's hanging on every word. I, I see it happen. When I get up to speak to a funeral, it's like, boop. We're all looking at the bride. Groom doesn't even matter. It's fine. I get it. Uh, if the groom doesn't matter, I can guarantee you the pastor doesn't matter. So, uh, and, and so everybody's kind of tuned out. But when you go to a wedding, this is why you will often hear the Apostle Paul's words. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. That's not just wedding talk. I hope you know that. That's not just wedding talk. That is putting grain into the storehouse. It's putting grain into the storehouse and building your relationship on the right platform so that hopefully when famine comes, when difficulty comes, you've got enough grain in there to survive the famine. That you have enough love, enough respect, enough sacrifice, enough mutual respect and submission. Hopefully you have enough of that to survive and weather the storm. It's true financially. You know I can't preach this without talking about this. It's too obvious, right? Financially, to make sure there's enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. Listen to Proverbs 21.20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. But a foolish man devours all he has. Of all the things we've talked about, this probably applies most directly to what Joseph is teaching us in Egypt. That under the leadership and direction of Joseph, they saved their grain, they ended up way ahead, and they ended up surviving the famine well. And you know, if you're anything like I do, um, if, and you watch the news, you know how easy it is to be critical of the government on this, right? That we watch the news and we're like, man, a lot. Do anyone else? The spending. And the debt, it is out of control, and they're spending every single tax dollar they take from me and you, plus some, right? And they're spending, and they're spending, and they're spending. The last few years, I've seen more anger and animosity toward government than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And you know what? The problem with that is, statistically, most Americans are living the same way as the government. We are the least saving generation in history, and we're spending more as individuals than any generation in history. So I guess, pastorally in love, I would ask, what do you call it when someone is angry at someone for doing the same thing they're doing? <laughs> right? Now, I don't say that to make us feel bad. I say that because some would rather be mad at the government than to get their own financial house in order. So here's what, I had, here's what I would say. Joseph had a plan in this area, and you and I, we need a plan too. And there's three things that I was taught, and you can, this is just what I was taught. You're welcome to reject this, but giving, saving, and spending. That we're going to save a certain percentage, we're going to give away through generosity a certain percentage, and we're going to spend a certain percentage, and then we're going to work like that plan like crazy. We're going to have like three 
kind of three silos, giving, spending, and saving. And we're going to work that plan kind of one step at a time. So let me do one more uh, to apply this principle. I know that one was kind of tough, but we'll do one more. Let's talk about kids. Way easier than finances, right? How many of you know that with your children a famine can come? I believe it's called the teenage years. So what does it mean to, to say that a famine, famine is coming, that maybe you're going through a season um, where your kids are, are just going through a hard time, they're angry, or they're doubting God, or they're going through a season of incredible temptation. And you're like, I don't know what to do. One of our jobs as, as parents is to make sure that there's enough grain in the storehouse to survive that famine, that we've given them enough God, enough tools, enough, enough love, that when those seasons of difficulty come, they survive. Um, I, I heard this really great talk a, a few months ago that uh, I, I really loved it because it really ministered to my soul, is that when it comes to your kids, um, assumed obedience is way better than forced obedience. And so the example that he was giving was like, on, the, the speaker was giving was on like church attendance. So like as, as a church that, or as a family, if you just have it like assumed, we, Sunday morning, we get up and we go to church, that is way easier to initiate than going through a crisis and trying to, for, like, you know, you, I, I, see, I see this happen a lot where we're all of a sudden we're going through a crisis and it's like, oh, we need Jesus in this situation, <laughs> right? And I'm glad, I'm always glad uh, to, to see people come to that conclusion, oh, we need Christ in our family, we need Christ in our kids, and, and they kind of reach that conclusion, but then that forced obedience is a lot harder to initiate. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, when you haven't done it for 10 years, all of a sudden, the first couple Sundays that you go, it, it, it is hard. Assumed obedience is a lot easier to initiate. Um, where all of a sudden, it's Sunday morning, we go. It's Sunday morning, we go. We don't go half the time. We don't go a quarter of the time. It, it's just a habit that our family has. That is a lot easier to initiate. And, so, and this is true of any, of any discipline. If you and your spouse decide you want to start praying together, the first couple times you force it or, or talk about it, it's awkward. It's awkward. But then eventually it moves from kind of forced or difficult to assumed. And it's like, well, every night before we go to bed, we pray. And all of a sudden, it's a habit. Reading your Bible as a family can be the same way. The first time you do it, the kids are like, oh, dad, dad, stop listening to Steve on Sunday. This is the worst, right? This is the worst. Why are you listening to the preacher, right? You've never listened to him before. Why are you doing it now, right? The, the force of it is difficult. But over time, it will become assumed. We eat dinner. We sit down. And we read the scriptures. And so regardless of where you're at on this, I want to I encourage us all with our kids, whatever habits we would like to see in our family, um, it may feel kind of forced today and tomorrow, but I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, over time it will move from forced to assumed. And your family will be blessed by it. Your family will be blessed by it. Because when they hit a famine, it's not going to be, kids, now we got to pray. We, we've not prayed for 15 years, but now we got to pray. It will be, no, 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 our family prays. It's like, no, kids, we got to read the scriptures. We've not read them in 15 years. we got to read them now. And, both, and that's great. Don't hear me being cynical. It is great. It's, the soil is harder in that moment. And it's different than saying, no, this is what our family does. 
We get up on Sunday morning, we go to church. After dinner, we read the Bible. Before bed, we pray. Whatever those habits are, and eventually they become, this is just what we do. This is what the Higgs do. This is what our family does. This, 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 these are our spiritual habits. And all of a sudden, in times of famine, your family is served. Someone was asking me about my sermon, and I said, it's going to be a little bit different. I said, I, I hope by the end of it that people will be identified what the sermon was about, that we want to have enough grain in the to survive the Right, all right. So, and, and so one, one kind of idea drilled through in several different areas, and I thought about what was really different about it, and it occurred to me. What occurred to me is that I preach a bazillion sermons a year on what to do when it all falls apart. Like, what do you do when you're in crisis? What, what do you do when the famine comes? What do you do when you're going through difficulty? I can hardly count on one hand the amount of sermons I do in a year that, what do you do when times are good? What do you do when you're feasting and you're making plenty of money and your family's not in crisis and your marriage is not in crisis? What do you do when times are good? And Joseph teaches us that in this. He says, when times are good, when, when you're not in times of crisis, start storing away some food. Develop some habits that will become just accepted habits within your family that are hard at first will become accepted habits. Begin stashing some money away. Don't spend everything on yourself. Begin loving your spouse in different and unique ways. Because one thing we know about a famine is you're either in a famine, you're just coming out of a famine, or you're getting ready for a famine, right? It's just a common kind of thing everybody goes through. There are not very many seasons that are just up and to the right. There are some. But there's not a ton that are up and to the right. And so when those times are good, we want to build the relationships and know God better and worship him more and develop healthy habits. And then we will be better equipped when the famine comes. That's what Joseph teaches us. It's about just being better equipped when famine comes for our marriage. We have this long history of respecting and loving one another. And yet it's hard and yet it's difficult, but we love and respect each other. That's what we do. Or when a famine comes for your kids, and all of a sudden they're kind of doubting and uncertain, or they're going through a temptation. It's like, we pray. We read God's word. We meet with a pastor. We go to church. It is just what we do. Or or in your financials, to have some stored away, not in a selfish or self-serving way, but just in a preparatory way. That when we hit those tough times, we have prepared and we have prepared well, when we go through a crisis of our own or, or in our family, it's not like I'm turning my back on God. No, it's like turning to God. It's just what we do. We pray, we sing, we attend, we seek God. It's just what we do. So that's what you do when, when, when times are good. You start building these habits. You start putting grain in the storehouse so that when the famine comes, there's enough in there. I know that some of you right now, you're, you're probably in a famine right now. And here's what I want to say to you about a famine. Don't give up on storing grain. It might be hard, right? There there might not be a ton of grain to store away. When when you're in crisis, that's a lot of times how it feels. But please, 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 don't don't be like, well, it's too late. It's too late for our marriage. It's too late for our kids. It's too late for my relationship. Please do not hear Joseph teaching us that. It is not too late. If you're in a marriage crisis, the greatest thing you could do tomorrow morning is love your wife like Christ loved the church. 
If your kids are in crisis, the greatest thing you can do tomorrow morning is say, hey, before we go to church, I want to pray with you. Dad, why are you being weird? I, I know I'm being weird. I just want to pray with you. That's the best thing you can do. Or to say, man, we don't, we don't have hardly two quarters to rub together, but we have two quarters, so I'm going to put one of them aside. And to begin, yes, the ground is harder. Yes, it is harder once you're in the crisis, but it's not worth giving up on. It is not impossible. You can start storing grain even in crisis, even in famine. And that's what I would encourage you to do is, man, what does it look like to put some grain in, into this? And it might feel awkward. It might feel weird. I might even be made fun of a little bit by my family. But I am telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Everybody look at me as your pastor. I am telling you, you will be glad you did. A year from now, two years from now, three years from now, six months from now, you will be glad you did. You will be glad you took the awkward step to the kid's bedroom and you walked in and they're rolling their eyes. What do you want? I want to pray with you. You will be so glad you did that. You will be so glad you, tu- you turn-, turn to your spouse who is full of animosity toward you. And you turn to them and said, baby, how can I love you? How can I serve you today? Tell me what to do and I will do it. Like, what's gotten into you? You will be so glad you did it. You will be so glad that on Sunday morning you set your alarm. And your church came in here and they've hardly even been cleaned up. You barely made it on time. We are glad you're here. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, in one year, two years, three years, you'll be glad you did it too. But it's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. We just spent the weekend in the emergency room. And this morning, I just confessed to you as my pastor, I'm like, How many of us really have to go today? I know I do. Um, How many of us have to go today? And our kids, it's just an assumed thing. Like, we're going. And so we ended up dragging ourselves in here. Unkempt, unclean, (laughs) crawling in, discouraged. And I'm telling you, it is not too late for you. It's not it is not too late for you to start putting grain into the storehouse. So whatever the crisis is, in times of good, that ground's a little softer. It's a little bit easier when times are good. But if you're here today in crisis, it is not too late. And we want to follow. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to be like the rest of our culture in times of good, just using it all on ourselves, spending everything on ourselves. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like Jesus. You know what he did in the three years before the cross? The three years before the cross, he prepared for the famine. He knew it was coming. He built relationships. He got to know his father better. He got his own heart and his own soul ready. And then the moment of his famine came, the cross. And in that moment, he refused to give up. He joyful, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning and shame so that we could be made right with God in this life and the next. And that's, what, what do you do? If you, could know a, a, what do you, if you could know a crisis is coming, and we, I know we don't always know, what, what could you do in the three years before? Say, well, in the three years before, if I knew a crisis was coming, three years before, I'd save a little money. If I knew a crisis was coming to my marriage, I'd probably treat my spouse a little bit different. 
If I knew a crisis was coming with my kids, I'd probably parent a little bit different. Whatever that is in your head, what would you do if you knew a crisis was coming? I want you to walk out these doors today and start it today. Whatever that is, if I knew knew it was coming, I'd pray with my kids more. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I want you to walk out of this room today resolved, resolved to do that very thing. Because this is just a good leadership principle. It's a wisdom principle. To have enough grain in the storehouse to survive the famine. And I'm telling you, whatever steps God is laying on your heart this morning, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you pastorally, you will be glad you did it. Get off your anger box and serve that spouse. Get off the pride box and pray with your kids. You will be so glad you did, and it can start today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray whatever those things are right now that you're laying on our heart, um, I know the things you're laying on my heart, that whatever it looks like for us when we think about Jesus, if we think about that a crisis in three years, or even one year, six months, as we think about what are the things that we would do in preparation for that, I pray that we would walk out of this space today, resolve to do that. I'm going to love my spouse better. I'm going to lead my kids better. I want to work better. I hardly even talked about that this morning. Manage my finances better. And I want to love you better. God, I don't want to be a person that hits the crisis. And all of a sudden I realize there's not enough grain. And all of a sudden, my relationship with you in peril is in peril. You are life. And I want to love you and honor you and worship you all of my life. And I, I, know, I know we all do. Help us to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of time. We're going to receive communion together. And it's an opportunity for us to remember, remember the things Jesus did as he faced his famine, the cross. And it's an opportunity for us to think about what are the things coming out of today that I need to do different. Um, Jesus, I've preached a sermon. Jesus will lead you. So he has things he's impressing on your heart and your mind. So I want to leave you time with him to lay those things on your heart. And just uh, we'll ha- there's two cups stacked on top of each other. One represents uh, the body of Jesus. The other represents the blood of Jesus. And it's just an opportunity for us to thank him for enduring the cross, going through that famine so that we could be saved. And then an opportunity to ask him, just lead me, Lord. What are the things I need to change in preparation for the famine that may be coming? And then I'll come back up here and uh, lead us all together uh, and receive communion. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we want to thank you for your sacrifice. We want to thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And we, right now, in relation to the sermon uh, we just heard, we want to thank you for the leading of your Holy Spirit. I I know that right now you are impressing things into our hearts and into our minds that you want us to change, that you want us to do different. And I just pray right now we would listen to that. We would listen to your word and that we would be leave this place emboldened, refreshed, renewed, passionate about doing the things to prepare for famine 
that you are calling us to do through your word and through your spirit. We thank you again for Jesus, for his sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's close with one last song, guys. Really glad that you were here. Um, Have a great week ahead as we uh, sing one more song.